Hey there, this is Jim Wills, and you're listening to the Crave Podcast, where we feed your soul with art. Artists are necessary to prove things that are impossible to prove. Don't be afraid to try new things, and you can do whatever you want to do. If we're doing it right, music is the soundtrack to our lives. If you believe in yourself, work the music Finding success with music, I think it takes a lot of focus. It takes a lot of sacrifice. All right. This week on the podcast, I'm here with Jen Harris, or as she likes to be called, Poet Jen Harris. She's she's an author. She's a spoken word poet who has performed all across the United States, from New York to California and everywhere in between. And she's also a visual artist, currently hawking her wares on the street corner on First Fridays in Kansas City. Uh, Jen, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Super appreciate being here. Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, when I, I always start out the podcast with a little bit of an inspiration, something that inspires you. So whether that is a quote, spoken word, or whether it's a visual piece of visual art, or it could even be a movie, film, whatever, song. Am I am I allowed to speak freely on this podcast? <laughs> Do I have any censorship concerns? Oh, no. Yeah, this is adult only. <laughs> it's after hours. I, uh... <laughs> Go ahead. It's totally fine. I am I am greatly inspired by uh, Charles Bukowski's poetry, even though he's a real big piece of shit as, as far as modern men are concerned. Okay. But he um, he has a po- a line in his poem where he's complaining about the world, and he said everyone is flaunting their mediocrity. And uh, I think about that an awful lot because I I think we all really want to be a big deal, and uh, like Steinbeck said, we're all kind of temporarily embarrassed millionaires. That's how the proletarians behave, and I'm I'm definitely that person. <laughs> what do you mean? What What does he mean when he says everyone is flaunting their mediocrity? That um, there's a lot of people out there in the world, no matter what industry or thing you attach yourself to, that um, don't want to give 110 percent of what it takes to get to the place you want to get. Okay, and they are just trying to convince you of their own importance with their with their words more than their actions. All right, right. Like they tell you, how you see great, that a lot in art. <laughs> they tell you how great they are when, in fact, they suck. Yeah, it's like, all right, well, so you want this gig? Uh, what's where's your website? Where's your portfolio? Who you worked for? And they just kind of shrug, <laughs> like, okay, never mind. <laughs> We're not on the same level. <laughs> Is that like an art? A uh, uh, an actor who goes to Hollywood and and like six months after you, they're there, they're like waiting tables and they're like, well, I got my headshots done. Yeah, Same yeah, kind of it's yeah. Uh, there's a very particular hustle and grind to this experience and uh you know i have i don't think i have grandiose aspirations in life i just think that i really really want to make an impact with my art and i believe what i have to say is valid and that's a 24 7 job yeah yeah Yeah. for sure for sure well we can get into that some more why don't we uh before we do why don't you give me a little bit of your history tell me how you got into art tell me how you got into poetry and visual art and like just kind of take me through a little bit of the stuff we were talking about earlier and maybe something new. Absolutely. Um, I have been writing and making art as long as I can remember. Um, writing is my great passion in life. It is the, 
the thing I cannot stop doing. Um, it's, I can never back burner it at all. It's uh, it happens every day, kind of in an involuntary way. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I feel like a sane person when I write. So I've been writing and processing my experiences in life that way. I mean, since at least fifth grade. That's when I can definitively remember being like, I love writing. I went to college for journalism. I worked as a journalist for on a freelance basis for a long time and then just decided that uh, if I was going to spend so much time writing stories for so little money, I might as well do it for my damn self. Right. <laughs> so I, I moved to California in 2012 because I had, I mean, I come from small town America and California had always been the dream. Um, so I went out to San Francisco and um, fell into a pretty pretty terrible drug addiction and I overdosed one night and woke up on my bathroom floor and realized that I was going to die if I didn't sober up. So in order to do that, I had to address the things that I had not been addressing and that started with processing my own experience in the world. So I went to Berkeley Poetry Slam kind of looking for like minds and um, that was after I had seen one YouTube video of Andrea Gibson performing online and just really felt connected to what they were doing. So I went to Berkeley Poetry Slam and man, I was terrible at it, but I, I suddenly loved slam poetry and all that was required of you in a very competitive and structured environment. And it's kicked off the rest of my life. Did when you so let's go let's back up a little bit <laughs> let's go back to you said that you used to you love to write and you were a writer did, did you have like a dear diary or a journal or something that you wrote in as a kid all the time and, I mean I had I had I and I still have I, I don't have all my my childhood diaries in a moment of impassioned anger at my whole life I threw like ten years of writing in a burn barrel and lit it on fire like a real psycho <laughs> <laughs> no that's setting it free that's releasing all that stuff. And, <laughs> Yeah, I was like, I don't want to be this person anymore. <sighs> and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember journaling so much as I remember loving poetry and wanting to capture my my truths in a unique way. I think metaphor is such an extraordinary art form. And I want to be the kind of person that can say something that's very relatable, but in an entirely new way. And I really push myself to do that. Okay, as an as an artist, do you think that your your artistry first originated then with with this the written word? Absolutely. My my mother used to take us to the library as often as she could. She uh, she would just have us fill up these canvas bags. And as a kid, they used to sell those uh, canvas tote bags to the library for like five bucks, and they'd have a cover of a different book on it every time. And and my mother just used to buy those bags and just be like, fill these, fill these, fill these. And we would walk home with, with dozens of books. And she I had a reading log and she just, I mean, she made me read. It was the thing she wanted me to do. And, um, and it just, I was able to get so lost and go so many places and like be a million different people. And it really like, I think it rounded me out to be in a strange and interesting world. And I wanted to continue adding to that. And I mean, the best thing I think I know is myself, so that's the subject I focus on. When did you start focusing on yourself? Like you went to the Berkeley Slam Poetry mm -hmm. thing, and, and I, was, I wrote a love poem that was way too long and nobody liked, <laughs> including the girl I wrote it for. <laughs> so before we started recording, you were talking about how you got you got kind of basically played off the stage because you yeah. you exceeded the time. Yeah. And 
I, uh, I didn't realize that in slam poetry in particular, there is a three minute time structure. And um, I didn't time my poem. I didn't practice my poem. I definitely didn't have it memorized, which are all elements of performance poetry that really benefit you in the long run. I just got right there. You said you didn't you didn't practice. Hmm? You said you didn't practice. No, I was just like I was finishing it in the parking lot. Like this is gonna be amazing. I'm an immediate genius. Like let this a lesson to be all the kids. Uh, So much arrogance. Practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now I practice all the time because I don't want to make a damn fool of myself again. But yeah, at the five minute mark, they were like, wah, wah, wah. And the band just started playing and they're like, get the fuck off the stage. Oh, my and goodness. It was, that was the first time I ever read a slam poem. So I feel like I got my biggest, most fearful failure out of the way immediately. Well, so what made you go back? Because a lot of people would be like, oh, my God, that was horrible. I'm never doing that again. Oh, man. Two things. Two things I will never forget in my life. The first one, this woman got on stage, and I don't remember her name. I remember her saying in a poem, it's been five years and I'm still coaching my ghosts. And I just, like, that just struck me in my heart, like how much we carry around as people and how much we don't forgive ourselves for and how, you know, when you're trying to evolve as a human being, you're walking a fine line of immediately becoming the person you were. Right. And you can't go backwards once you know better. So that just, I mean, it moved me tremendously. And um, the first night I was there, um, the MC said, uh, this is a church for pe- people who don't have one. And because I am a queer person who grew up in the Midwest in small town Murica, I mean, I was dairy farming kid. (laughs) My dad was in the military. My mother, you know, took care of her children like that. We all had very specific roles. And when I came out, um, I was kicked out of my entire life, including my church, which I had been I had been raised very Southern Baptist. I very was very religious most of my life. I felt very connected to God in a lot of ways. And I felt robbed of my identity when I this other thing evolved in me. And um, I needed a church. I needed a place to go where we were all different, but we were all the same. Sure. And um, I actually, when I went on my, I went on my flaunting her mediocrity tour <laughs> uh, two years ago, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I ran into that MC in friggin' Oakland, California, and he immediately recognized me. And I told him about that night, and then we got hammered at a bar. <laughs> and it was just like. It, I mean, it was, you know, it had been a five-year uh, turnaround or four-year turnaround from the moment I met him to the moment I was featuring at Slams sure. and being paid to perform for these people for 20 to 30 minutes. And it just changed my whole life. It made me feel like I had a home again. And you got that from that first night, even though you performed? No, um... The first night that I was there is when Dre said, this is a church for people who don't have one. And so then started going back. Later. Yeah. And then and you're then, like, I'm going to do this. And then you yeah. stopped. And then I moved back to Kansas City. <laughs> I was there at Berkeley Poetry Slam really in a lighthearted manner for about four months. Okay. And then I, I moved back to Kansas City for love. And um, I went to this place called Uptown Arts Bar, which was supposed to be a spot for We the Weirdos. And it was a Wednesday night, and I walk in like, all right, I'm going to read it open mic. And the open mic had been canceled because Oh, my came. goodness. 
And uh, within like two months, I had connected with the bar general manager and was like, I got to start a slam. And she's like, what do you know about slams? And it's like nothing, but I got to start a slam. And that was it. Really? Uh, yeah, I planned it out for, I worked on it, developed a logo, I developed a business plan. And uh, three months later, uh, I believe it was February of 2014. Yeah, 2014. Kansas City Poetry Slam was born. And now we're in our fourth year, sold out shows. Uh, there's never an empty seat in the house. The first Wednesday is the slam, and the three Wednesdays after that is this uh, open mic called Poetic Underground. And, I mean, the place is like, I don't know, we got like 60 chairs in there. Wow. And, I mean, there's probably 100 people at any given time on a Wednesday just like taking and receiving, and it's, it's beautiful. But then you moved away. And then I went to Denver for seven months. <laughs> oh, was it only seven months? Yeah, I moved out there August of 2017, and I just got back here in April. Okay. March, April. So how did, why did you end up going back to Kansas City? You know, I, um, there's just, I struggle a lot with, like, the pros and cons of every city I'm in. And, you know, in San Francisco, I left for love. And I also left because I realized that my rent was about to double because the tech industry had started to move into that part of California. Right. And Denver was really hard to navigate in that um, there's a lot of political correctness that I, I struggle with. There's a lot of visible call out culture that I struggle with. There is a lot of rich kids with, uh, you know that are consumer driven human beings and there's not a lot of rooted art artists in the community that are able to make community change. Like they, they're kind of glossed over by how fast and busy and, uh, I don't know, industry driven Denver has become. Cause I remember driving through Denver 10 years ago and being like, all right, well, we drove through Denver <laughs> and like now we're leaving. And, uh, Denver changed a lot with legalization and it changed a lot in a way that I, I don't jive with. Like I, my life is not about the cars I can buy or the places I can own or, you know, what I, I mean, I own like six t-shirts, you know, <laughs> like I, right, I live right. art and it was hard to find people who could not only ensure to me that they were invested in the community and doing things for the right reasons, but also that were able to stay in Denver because the rent got so high that you kind of drive out a like, people who are making experimental, therefore not necessarily financially viable art, you know, places like, um, the coffee shop at five points that housed slam Nuba for decades, you know, was completely like they, they kicked them out of that venue because, because yeah. money, cause change, cause I guess they call it progress, but I mean, gentrification is real and I'm not the kind of person that can survive in a place like Denver when, uh, I'm not interested in working four jobs to do it. Sure, sure. Well, you're right, and that's, I guess, one of the downsides of, of legalization of weed and, and that we talked talking earlier, the prices have just gone through the roof. And I don't talk about too much on the podcast, but we have definitely mm -hmm. have in Denver that gentrification of the artists. I actually did a thesis paper on the Rhino District and how that's, mm -hmm. that was exactly like you talked about. And I was thinking earlier, I used to live in Boulder, and there was this coffee shop in Pearl Street. I tried looking it up. It closed many many years ago but it had been open since like the 50s and like they had pictures on the wall Jack Kerouac had hung out there when he came through Boulder and they used to do slam poetry every week and I used to go there and hang out and I 
it got same thing that you just mentioned. It got bought out in that, or not bought out, but the landlord just kept raising the price because he could, and eventually the coffee shop owner couldn't afford to stay there anymore and shut it down. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that happens. Unfortunately, it happens to the artistic communities. I think all too often because, like you were saying, we go into a place where we can afford it because we're making art that we can't necessarily. You got to figure it out before you can sell it. If you can sell it, you right? Know? Exactly, exactly. Well, so we talked a little bit. About, you you mentioned um, lovely drug habit that you engaged in for a while that almost yeah. took you out, and so that yeah. would probably been one of the the struggles that you went through in your thing. But but also being, you know, you don't call yourself gay. You call yourself queer. I do call myself queer. I uh, I didn't like that word for a long time because I'm kind of a. I mean, I'm thirty. I'm about to be thirty three. So I I consider myself crowning into old lesbian territory. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you're not an angry old lesbian then. Yeah, not yet, not yet. I had this experience when I was I I was in community college and community college was like the greatest experience of my life. I loved my community college and it loved me and we, it, it changed my life. Like everything good that's like, I wasn't expected to go to college. Uh, statistically, you know, I come from like, I mean, dirt poor and mobile home, like, you know, dairy farming, farm, just, I mean, nothing right. to our names kind of. And I statistically, I should be barefoot and pregnant and like, <laughs> I don't want to be that. Right. And um, I waited until I was like 24 to really go to college full time. And I went to the college nearest me. I was sure. just like, I'll try to, I'll, I'll try it out. I'll do this. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, whatever, we'll see what happens. I walk into my first journalism class ever. And the teacher, the professor looks right at me and says, you're going to be the next editor-in-chief of the school newspaper, the Campus Ledger. Ah. And I was like, I don't know who the fuck you are, but I just came back to college for the first time. Like, stop hassling me. And, man, a year later, I was editor-in-chief of the newspaper, and I committed my whole life to that school. And it just, I just, I, you know, I was in the right place at the right time, which is kind of the dumb luck of my life. Sure. The struggles of, of the drug addiction, what kind of drugs was it? Were, were you involved in? You don't mind me asking. Um, you know, I don't it. mind you asking. And well, and then I wanted to like back up because you asked about what did you ask about right before that? Because I said something about the community college. Be gay, gay versus queer. Oh yeah, yeah. Hang on, let me finish that thought. All right, let's back um, it up, folks. We're going back to the... gay versus queer. <laughs> they changed the name of the Gay Straight Alliance to Queers and Allies. And I was furious. I was like, no, queer is what they call you right before they punch you in the mouth. We don't use that word. Right. Um, And over time, as I spent more time investing myself in my community, I learned that queer is a very open door policy. So queer envelopes your sexual orientation. It it includes your gender identity. It includes the fluidity of that. You don't have to be any one particular thing and you're allowed to fluctuate. When you say things like, I'm a lesbian, that makes a very definitive statement. And when you say things like, I'm queer, that means I'm not banking on your genitals to decide whether or not I'm capable of being in love with you or seeing you as you present yourself as a human being and that your identity is valid. So I identify as queer now because I think, you know, some of the things about me are in, uh, not opposition to each other, but I'm a complex person, and I, sure. I don't want just one label. <laughs> <laughs> I like that word, fluidity. That's good. Yeah, it's 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 much easier to be in a, a space of fluidity. So, 
going back to the, the challenge is more than anything else, more than a drug addiction. Obviously, that's a challenge, and waking up conscious or after an overdose and realizing that you didn't kill yourself, that's a huge thing to overcome. And then just yeah. deciding that, hey, I don't have the same beliefs as my ancestors, my parents. I don't have the same sexual <laughs> orientation that they think I should have or traditionally should have. That's obviously a huge challenge. I imagine that your poetry was an outlet to release a lot of that confusion, anger, those kind of negative emotions. Absolutely. I um, I spent about six solid months like doing Molly and meth and coke, and you know it was in my own twisted way. Like I'm a really high functioning addict, so I was like, oh man, I don't have to sleep for two or three days at a time, and that means that I can work a 16 hour day and make my business as successful as I want to. And then I've got time to write and rehearse and practice, and then I've got time to call my mother, and I've got time <laughs> to do all this shit, like. You know, every, I wanted everything to be perfect. And sure. I struggle with that now in my sobriety from anything. I'm sober from anything that goes up my nose. Them's the rules. Okay. Because uh, <laughs> that's what I struggle with. But, like, in realizing that that's why I was doing drugs is trying to meet these impossible expectations of being able to just keep going and keep succeeding and keep making everybody proud of me in my life. Like, I almost killed myself. And I'm too arrogant to kill myself like I, I think i should be here as long as i'm allowed to be here so. right right you weren't you're necessarily using the drugs to kind of deal with the confusion or that sort of thing that you often hear with someone who's struggling with with being gay or struggling with being a, a sexual identity or gender identity you weren't you, you didn't have those problems not not in my not in my mid-20s when i had this particular addiction i had a i had a tremendous fear of failure because up until that point uh, my life had been really tumultuous. I'd been in a lot of abusive relationships. I, my 16-year-old sister got pregnant and had a baby, and we did, took care of that child together until my sister was old enough and like more responsible and capable enough to um, really be the best parent she could be. And, um, I mean, everything was just kind of hell. And when I was a teenager, I drank like it was the end of the world and I didn't enjoy drinking. I just didn't enjoy being in my own skin sure, because sure. I kind of kept like waiting for, I kept waiting to not be gay. I kept praying about not being gay. I kept hoping that one day it would like kick in, that I would be attracted to biological, biological men. And I just, it never happened. And I had, I had very little community support. I had very, I had zero role models. I didn't know anybody like me until I like met my first girlfriend at, at 16 and it was still not something that we had any language for. We just had this attraction to each other and we knew that right. we didn't know why we didn't know where that would lead. I didn't know I was going to piss the whole fucking world off coming out. Like I, I didn't know this was a thing people were fighting about on a congressional level. Like I just, I just was like, well, I guess I like girls. So then everybody was like, burn at the stake. So, <laughs> it was intense. So do you still talk about that in your art today, in your in your poetry? Do you still talk about those kind of conflicts and those, not conflicts, but those kind of, I guess, societal conflicts, they still exist, but... I, I did a, a TED Talk um, in September of 2017 um, called po Spoken Word Poetry Saved My Life, and I have notes in it. I'm just shaking and terrified of failure yet again, but I... Um, I talk about the statistical probability of drug abuse, suicide, suicide attempts, 
um, all of these terrible things that are kind of stapled to the collar of every queer, trans, lesbian, gay, bisexual person in this country. Yeah. And it's not because um, we are genetically or inherently uh, more likely to uh, have mental illness or societal struggle by nature. It's because of the culture that we live in. And in that, it's really dangerous to be out in America. You, I mean, especially where I live. Like, I mean, I, I'm, I live in a pretty insular community in that I'm surrounded by artists in an art neighborhood, so I'm safe. But like, I, I drove an hour to visit my mom today and I didn't, I didn't feel unsafe in her small town, but mainly because I just know I can protect myself now. Sure. I didn't feel that way when I was young. So when I wanted to fit in, I would just be the person who could, you know, slam a liter of vodka and act like it was no big deal. And, you know, I could be promiscuous and I could do all the drugs and I just, I thought I was showing off and being a badass, but like in hindsight, I was coping very much with feeling like, like a man without a country. Yeah. What was hard. A queer without a country. Yeah. Well, you got, you got a country now. Do you feel like you have a country now? I do. I I feel like a citizen of art. I feel like I, (laughs) I feel like I can, I can feel at home in a lot of any place that I go to. There's anytime I'm ever lost in a major city, which coming from a small town, going to someplace like DC or New York city for the first time was mind altering. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But I have to remind myself, people live here. People are bored with this place. There are people who get up and go to the same coffee shop and take the same bus and they go to work every day and they come home and they do the same shit. You're totally fine. You're going to figure this out. You're going to, and that was before Lyft and Uber that I developed that attitude. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it was a good thing for me to go out in the world and be scared and, and challenge myself to, to have the life that I really wanted. And that required me to be terrified a lot. Sure. Sure. And to make a lot of very visible and obvious mistakes now, but I didn't know that when I was a kid. I just thought like, oh, I'm just having fun. This is what everybody does at 22. And it was like, no, this isn't what everybody does. And this isn't what everybody does at 27. But like, this is what I do to cope. And then I got some really great therapists. So, you know, I put down, <laughs> put down the drugs. I don't really drink anymore. I'm always going to be an advocate of marijuana, but... Uh, not necessarily for its alteration properties as much as its ability to to heal and to soothe pain. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I could go down a long road talking about that. <laughs> My dog has been yeah. completely renewed his life from from his uh, CBD experience. Man, I've, I've had CBD shipped to me since I moved back because we have a CBD store here, but, of course, the import expense is tremendous, so it's pretty expensive here. It's not like it is in Denver, but I have salves and and lip gloss and I mean all the like anything that could hurt on my body is covered by some sort of CBD yeah absolutely absolutely (laughs) what do you love most about being an artist every day is an adventure (laughs) I you know I have a I have some pretty steady uh, freelance clients I work um, a lot on branding and marketing and advertising with a lot of uh, well with a couple of major organizations that um, I work very quietly in the dark as like a ghostwriter but I, I have this freedom to create that I've worked really hard to have and so I get to pay my bills from my living room and I get to go sit at a coffee shop and and write about something I'm thinking about in the middle of the day or you know, it doesn't make a difference if it's 2 p.m. or 2 a.m. I'm in charge of my own schedule. Right. And that's, right. It's pretty uh, cool, isn't I, it? 
Yeah, I've tried to box myself into a lot of different shifts, and it just doesn't work for me. You remember Megan Burt. You know Megan Burt. So talented. She did my podcast uh, a couple episodes ago, and we recorded it like 11 o'clock at night, something like that. Mm-hmm. Like She still said she gets up early, but she was like, yeah, I'd rather do it at 10 o'clock at night than... Then first thing in the morning. Then, I am the same way. The dreaded 10 a.m. <laughs> yeah. I will get up early if somebody's paying me good money to be up early. But otherwise, like my, my kid sister texted me yesterday because she's married now and has two kids. And, uh, you know, she's about to pull her damn hair out with these children. But she's like, uh, you know, help me. I'm having a whatever, a bad day. And I, I texted her back and was like, your text just woke me up. <laughs> it was it was noon. <laughs> and she's so annoyed with me. But I'm like, I, I made a world of different choices than you kids so that I could not get up until noon if I don't want to. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Tell me, um, what piece of advice would you give to someone who is starting out as an artist, regardless of the discipline, whether it's spoken word or visual art or music or whatever? What? What kind of advice would you give them? All your competition will die off eventually. So just persist. <laughs> At full force, persist. <laughs> All of your competition <laughs> will die off eventually. I, uh, I have found that I truly think the sole secret to success in the art world is to keep making art. Sure. People get frustrated. They're like, all right, in five years, if, if I'm not a big deal, if I'm not making a hundred grand every time I speak, I quit. Well, then don't start because you might not ever achieve that, that long-term goal and your goals will evolve and things you once thought you wanted will drop away. And your measure of success is on a daily basis. So persist because there is no other way to make art. I like that. That was good, too. Persist because there is no other way to make art. <laughs> Another good one. <laughs> Thank you. I take great pride and great joy in what I do, and it's because I, I can't live without it. Sure. I try to box it up and ignore it, and I try to get a nine-to-five, and I'm good at a lot of things. I have a lot of skills, but when I don't have the freedom to create with regularity, I definitely start to suffer. Yeah. I have physical reactions to it. I have emotional reactions to it, and I just – I. All I want to do is make art. And I know there are a lot of people. I talk to them a lot every day, all the time, because I travel and do activism work for the LGBTQ plus community. I talk to a lot of people about just like, you know, the practice of continuing. Sure, sure. You know, your success is quite literally a daily experience. It, it cannot be anything more or less than that. Absolutely. I love that show that used to be on. Uh, VH1 back in the day called Driven. Do you remember that show? Yeah. And it, they yeah, showed these musical artists, but it was always and that that happens all too often in art, in music, and theater, and like the professional arts that we see all the time, where an artist has busted their ass for years that we don't know about it until they have that hit on the radio or until they're in that one movie that has put them. I saw this video of Justin Bieber when he was a little kid playing on the streets in Canada, like, and the guitar was as big as he was. I'm like, there's yeah. no wonder that kid's going to be a celebrity because he, or a star because he was busting ass from the time he was eight years old. He knew what he wanted to do. So, Absolutely, and I, I think it's incredibly valuable to have those stories put out. And I wish, you know, I love when they finally make the movie about the entirety of the artist's life because there is a truth to the persistence that there really isn't when it comes to the one hit wonder or the person who was, you know, discovered immediately after their first effort. Like there's no, 
everybody wants to be the person who makes one at one try and just all of a sudden there's millions of dollars raining from a ceiling. But like the truth is, is that most people don't experience that. And there are always going to be people more talented than me. There are always going to be people less talented than me. And most of both of the both ends of those people could be recognized in ways I'll never feel as fair. But that's not what this is about. You know, the only person I really want to be in competition with is myself. And the people that I admire the most, even when they weren't the darling of the media's eye anymore, or they never became that, they still made art because they loved it and because they felt called to do so. I don't think it's any more or less complicated than that. (laughs) Well, I think the persistence was just a huge piece of that, of persist and don't give up. And uh, I mean, what do you think holds most artists back from being great or being Mm -hmm. fantastic? is it is it because they discover they're not going to get that one hit wonder and or they're not going to be the one hit wonder so they give up? I think that people stop loving their art and they start pursuing an idealized version of what they thought their art could bring them. So they start kind of worshiping the potential reward of art rather than worshiping the art itself. I think what holds people back is, um, of course, his name's escaping me now because I haven't thought about him in a couple of years, but there is a book called um, The War of Art. Not The Art of War, but The War of Art. Yes. He defines resistance with a capital R in that book. Okay. And he talks about when you are feeling the absolute most terrified, when you feel like stepping in this direction is going to take everything out of you that you have, like that's the direction you're supposed to walk because any reward on the other side of that is going to test you to see if you are willing and capable and determined enough to get to it. And I, I think a lot of people want art and art making and specifically marketing art to be easy. Yeah. It is not easy. No. It is exhausting. No. <laughs> it's very challenging. <laughs> yeah. What did you say? Exhausting. So, it is exhausting, yeah. It is, but I, I love it, and I wake up every day, and I treat it like a child or a pet or anything. It's something I love, and I have to nurture, and some days we get along, and some days we hate each other, and some days I think we're both going to die, and it nev- none of those things ever stick around for very long, so I just keep going. Sure, absolutely. So the the book you mentioned, I and it's funny you mentioned it because this is probably the third or fourth time I've heard it in the last year or so. So it has to go onto my reading list. It's called The War of Art, Winning the Inner Creative Battle by Stephen Pressfield. Pressfield, yes. Yeah, and I like I said, I've heard it, I've heard it come up a couple times. I've not yet read it, but it'll be on my reading list for sure. The War of Art. I'm gonna save that one. He has a he has a military background, so his uh, his sentences are very sharp and declarative. And he's like, "No more bullshit. Just make your work." <laughs> and I'm like, "Stop telling me what to do." And then I throw the book across the room. But I took so much away from that because it just he didn't. There, it's not an emotional book. Like I love um, Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic. It lays out from beginning to end. You're going to be terrified. Fear is always going to be present. But fear doesn't get the ride shotgun. Fear can be in the car. Fear is part of the process. It's going to come along with you wherever you go. But you're in charge of driving this ship. And every aspect of like where you find inspiration and how beautiful and magical and strange and unexpected great ideas are and how a great idea doesn't necessarily uh, translate into a big paycheck and just... Between that and Pressfield just saying, like, the only excuse 
uh, you have for not making art is for you to be dead is uh, <laughs> I needed both of those messages in my life. Sure, absolutely. Give me three people who inspire you. Three people who inspire me. Um, living Dead, does it matter? No, Living Dead. I'm, well, Living Dead, I guess that would be a zombie. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just a couple of talk show hosts that are in that category. <laughs> uh, three people that inspire me, I would say Charles Bukowski. Okay, you mentioned him earlier. Anne Lamott. Who's Anne Clementine, Lamont? Anne Lamont is um, technically a religious writer. She started out writing a uh, memoir about life, and okay. I found her to be incredibly sincere in the way she illuminates the struggle, the human struggle. Yeah. Anne Lamont, Natalie Goldberg, and Julia Cameron. Um, Natalie Goldberg and Julia Cameron are both memoirists. Julia Cameron actually used to be married to Martin Scorsese, and she did a lot of um, a lot of she did a lot of deep throat coverage for Rolling Stone, and like she was a big deal in many ways. But she's most famous now for the artist the artist's way that book. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Julia Cameron and Natalie Goldberg used to live in Taos, New Mexico, and I found Taos by accident, and it has really become like a spiritual home that I try to visit at least annually. And, uh, we're uh, trying to get it on the Taos in August. Oh, I love Taos, Taos so much. Great. It's a great spot, yeah, for sure. I, uh, oh, it was just beautiful. I, I was driving to California when I was moving there. I decided to drive across the country. And um, I was listening to this CD, this two-part CD called On the Writing Life. And it was Julia Cameron and Natalie Goldberg. And um, the way in which it just like clicked in my head that we had all these things in common and if they had gotten where I dreamed of being, I could get there too. Yeah. It was just really, really inspiring. And I like that you said that because I think that it, it's important to hear, to, to have that kind of vision of like, wow, this person is someone I look up to or I, they're doing what I either want to do or I'm kind of doing on a smaller scale or whatever. And they're, they've made it or they've successful or they've something that it gives inspiration to be able to achieve. And so it's mm-hmm. like kind of like that idea of uh, blessing those with more because they have they've gotten to a place where you want to get to so you know that you have the ability to get there too. Absolutely. And and both of them like I think Julia Cameron really kicked it off in a, a pretty powerful way in that she was a journalist and she happened to be a part of breaking and covering a, tr- a story that changed national history whereas Natalie Goldberg you know, is a a New York Jew and she uh, wrote poetry at 19 and decided she loved it and she was teaching and then she began writing about writing. And, you know, it's been 20 plus years now and both, you know, Natalie and Julia live in the same place, have the same peers, have the same notoriety. They came about it in two totally different ways. And what they're paid to do now is write and speak. And I think that of all the grandiose dreams I ever had, my primary one at this point is to just make a living doing what I love doing. Sure, sure. And, you know, that living can be modest all it wants to be, and I'll never turn away, you know, good money. But, like, at the same time, (laughs) uh, I'm going to keep doing it no matter what, you know. So speaking of doing things that you love to do and not making money at it, you did a TEDx talk or a TED talk. Yeah. I did. <laughs> I found it online, and I'll post it in the show notes. It's right on YouTube, but I want so I'll have to check it out. But tell me about that experience. What was that like? It was terrifying. It was the most terrifying, because you, I, you, I, I, I watch TED talks all the time. I watched a TED talk uh, before I fell asleep last night about um, where to find joy. You know, I love learning, and I love learning about 
uh, things that really have no relevance to me or any nothing that I studied or that I was particularly interested in. Sure. And also I really love diving into like the aesthetics and the complexity of human emotions. Like that's what I want to explore in my writing. Mm-hmm. So I watch TED Talks all the time and uh, I really wanted to do one. And my ex-partner had said to me years ago, like I could see you doing one of these one day. And I applied and they were like, yeah, fantastic. See you in a few weeks. (laughs) And I just like, I gave it my all. Like I was absolutely prepared. I rehearsed. I, I took it very seriously. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I got on stage with my notes, which I think is probably my greatest regret because if I had really trusted myself enough, I could have delivered the speech in the way that I prepared it. Yeah. But in journalism, you learn not to be precious with your words, but in poetry, my words are precious to me. Okay. And so I really wanted to say everything I needed to say in that TED Talk. Right. So I don't think my delivery was as sharp and as concise as I wanted it to be, but I, I challenged myself and I succeeded and uh, I also scared the hell out of myself. So all good things. That's the, Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. Would you do it again? Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, my, my friend uh, Megan Slankard is a musician out in San Francisco, and she's doing a TED Talk in Vegas at oh, the end nice. of June. And she was like, you look so calm in your TED Talk. And I was like, I am not calm. <laughs> I am sweating buckets under that blazer, convinced I'm going to throw up in front of all these people. Prepare yourself for that. Because Megan's played stages that like I could only like beg to be allowed to like do some backstage work on. But it's... It's very humbling because people show up to TED Talks expecting authenticity. And mm-hmm. I think that's what draws everybody to them. Absolutely. So you can't get up there. And, I mean, you could get up there and bullshit an audience, but they're going to know. And uh, that's that's really a tremendous endeavor to be like, I'm going to go up in front of virtual strangers and not just perform poetry about myself, but like really talk about the elements of life that made me who I am and how what I know about myself has turned into how I can help other people and how you can help other people by being aware of this particular issue in in life, you know? Sure. Yeah. Uh, That's what I like about Ted and what you mentioned earlier. It's like it, Ted's a great place to go to make you think about things that you never thought about before in your life. And, and you may not always agree and or, or it, it, I think if you listen to a TED or watch a TED talk and at least have an open enough mind to go, wow, that's that's a different perspective. I never thought yeah. about that like that way before. It, I think it it really helps to expand our awareness and how different we all are and how, how we all go through the same struggles, yet each struggle is really individual and different for each other. And the, they're all mm-hmm. inspiring. So I'm excited to check out your talk. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just like, oh, I did a TED talk. Nobody look it up. Um, no, it's, it's awesome. mainly because I, I, cause I raise, I want to raise the bar of what I'm challenging myself to do. And, um, you know, I just, I scared myself. I scared myself with the, the potential of what could be. And, you know, I was also like really running low on a lot of fuel. Um, right. That TED talk happened in September and my second and third books were supposed to release in October. And um, <laughs> I was going to title, it's on my Kickstarter page from like 2016. I was going to title my second book, uh, Me Too. And <laughs> really? my publisher at the time was like, that's too obscure. Nobody's going to look that shit up. It's oh too hard to reach the SEO levels, right? 
So I, I kind of like backburnered my book and was like, all right, I gotta, I gotta figure out how to shape this and I'll retitle it, blah, blah, blah. Fucking day my book is supposed to come out. The Me Too campaign like explodes on the internet. And oh my I, goodness. I just like, I think I went through a tremendous sense of grief because I let that TED talk kind of like be the thing I focused on rather than following my ambition for this book and this title, because that's the thing people say to me when they get off stage. They, they, I, I, they come up to me constantly and say like, oh my God, me too, me too, me too, me too. And I was like, man, I need to just like honor that mutual experience. It doesn't have to be exact, but when I say something like, you know, it's hard to leave marriages because you're just unhappy rather than like anything major or, you know, catastrophic happening. People want to come up and like, just, you know, exchange a human experience with me. Right. And, uh, but they can relate. It was just, yeah. And that was, I let the Ted talk, I think become the center of my world. And a lot hinged on that because I didn't diversify myself enough to say like, I'm going to do my best at this. And I've also got these other things that I'm really focused on. So whatever happens, happens. I didn't accept that. Like maybe I wouldn't do the best that I wanted to do, but I was going to give it my best. I put so much pressure on myself to be excellent that I think there was no way to ever meet that bar. <laughs> well, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure even if you didn't meet that bar, like no one else knows, right? They don't know. It's like... Not yet. I, and, <laughs> but like, like as a musician, especially if you're... I mean, if it's different if you're a soloist, but if you're, you know, in a group, in an orchestra, and you have a yeah. mind... Like you play one note wrong, no one in the audience will ever know it, you know? It's yeah. like if you screw up a whole bunch, if you say like the one word wrong, but you cover it, most people don't know, you know, if yeah. you do something wrong. So... We're always our own worst critics. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and fear is a is a great dictator. I mean, it's really got its role unlocked. So, <laughs> I uh, I'm not afraid in any capacity. Doesn't matter what the size of the stage is. With sharing, just directly my work, but specifically with the TED Talk, I felt like I was delivering a message to people about the queer experience. And I'm like, you may have been browbeat with these statistics in one way or another. But like this is how they're personal. This is how we can change the world. So these statistics don't even aren't even calculable in the future. Like right. we right. can change this. And in that, it felt very important and very precious. Because on stage, if I miss a line or I skip a stanza, I'm like, well, okay, I guess I missed that stanza. <laughs> I'm moving right along. Like I, you, we would never know if right. I forgot something when I was performing. But. I didn't have that kind of fearlessness with the TED Talk. I felt like the stakes were too high. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to check it out, and I'm sure it's Thank fantastic. You. So Thank you. I didn't ask you this beforehand, but would you do some poetry on the podcast? Yeah, I would love to. Yeah. Before we jump into that, I want to ask you if you had 20 seconds with your – or if you had 60 seconds with your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give her? Get as far away from small minds as possible and go find people like yourself. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I uh, I wish she knew that. Did you do that, though? I mean, that's what you did. I, I did later in life. I think I did a lot of damage trying to fit in, and I kind of accepted what was offered to me. Okay. And in the Midwest, I... I found myself in a lot of abusive relationships and they were abusive because there's a lot of internalized homophobia. There's a lot of anxiety and pressure and stress from the parents who, I mean, 10, 15 years ago, were just tolerating your lifestyle, right. uh, which is never a phrase I want to hear again. Tolerate. Um, yeah, or lifestyle. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was a lot of pressure and I, I stayed really close to home 
in a general geographic area because I was too afraid of what the world might hold. And I think that I stayed in a lot of dangerous and unhappy situations um, because they were normal and familiar to me rather than risking being uncomfortable in a different way for the sake of knowing myself and being a healthier person. Sure, sure. So I would literally put 18-year-old me on a bus and just directly for California, like, get the fuck out of here, go find some other lesbians, like, (laughs) go find somebody who gets you, who can tell you about your history, who can help you expand all the beautiful parts of yourself. Sure. And don't just hang out and wait for, like, one shitty bisexual girlfriend who just really is using you as a placeholder until her divorce is final. Like, ugh, God, find some nicer people to be around. Well, it looks like you've you've done that. It's taken a little bit longer, maybe. Yeah, I'm crazy in love with an amazing human now. She's just, yeah, I I mean, I can't wait to marry her and spend the rest of my life with her. And it's not idealized. It's like, oh, I found this beautiful match that forces me to grow and to try. And, like, it's so much better now than it ever was. But I didn't find her in my backyard. I found her in Denver when I was on tour. (laughs) (laughs) That's why you came here for seven months, too. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, she's, you know intelligent beyond belief and super hot and had a pool so why wouldn't i move to there <laughs> uh, so you said you're up for doing some poetry for us yeah i am uh, i have grabbed some stuff earlier because i, I wondered so is there anything i need to do to nope. prepare should i get the audience ready in some way <laughs> ladies and gentlemen boys and girls poet <laughs> poet generous <laughs> uh, All right, so I am currently writing this zine um, that I'm going to turn into a book, and it's called Butch, and I'm really exploring um, just the history of myself in a different way, I think from a very specific angle of being a young queer person and not knowing it. Okay. Um, This is called uh, Body Part One. There is a photo of me standing so softly in my six-year-old body. Short, wavy blonde hair, ferociously loyal mutt at my feet, Italian eggplants bursting from the raised beds of Naples in the early 90s. I hold this photo gently, trying not to disturb the memory of her in a loose-fitting tank top, cuffed jeans, that half-smile smirk everyone calls charming. I'm as peaceful as a cup of coffee. Six years later, in the first house that was ever just ours, I remember the blood in the bathtub, my sheer joy at growing closer to aging out of being told what to do, how to be. Soon, the breasts arrive, no return address. Soon, the ass arrives, no return to sender option. Soon, the men arrive, drool-drenched jowls, razor-sharp demands, no turning back now. This is just how it is. I get good at dodging their stabs, ducking their advances, half-smirk charming my way out of the alley of lust. I gain a hundred pounds of armor because they make it so clear that no one wants to fuck fat dykes and I'd rather fuck up my knees and my self-esteem than be on a menu. There are so many girls in towers of their own making just waiting to be rescued. I wish I were not one of those girls. All I want is to be grounded in a sense of self, to reach a place where I have explored all the paths in me, chipped the mountains down to mulch, installed new stoplights, closeted the junk I can't bear to part with, making a home on the precipice of my own understanding and opening a fresh book. It is always here that I find a piece of myself. Lately, 
I have been reading about all the queers before me who, brown the, who bound their breasts to avoid suffocation. Butch women who ground their femininity down to grains of sand, erasing all evidence of their vastness. We have been told no one will ever want to hold anything so big, so we toil daily with tearing ourselves apart. Two decades later, there are no photos of me digging my heels into the dunes of Ocean Beach, begging my calves to carry me forward. I can hear the ocean just on the other side of the grasses and I am racing toward my freedom. I can feel her love coming up behind me, her soft side, the sight of the, Pacific, of the Pacific's expanse. In that moment, it didn't matter to her that the ocean is full of garbage that other people left behind. It didn't matter to her that I am full of garbage that other people left behind. All that matters is I exist as I am and she can find me and the condition I'm in will always allow her to leave her love here without a return address. <laughs> that was great. Thank you. That was really Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. And that's what you're working on today is uh Butch. Butch, yeah. Butch. I um I've been hustling these zines out. I have a a Patreon account and um I generally release three to five new pieces every month solely on Patreon and then um I released Butch to the public last month and I was just, you know, it's only 16 pages and some of it's just hand-drawn comics about my rage of my day and <laughs> other things are poems about my, you know, whatever experience I'm having right now. But sure. I think the, the greatest disservice anybody ever did me was hide all of the hard parts of life. Like my family really struggled uh, growing up in so many ways and I often encountered people who didn't want to talk about their history and the way their parents struggled or the way they struggled. And as my first really important long-term relationship was falling apart, I realized how many of my married friends didn't want to talk about when things have to end because it's the necessary and healthy thing for people to go through together. Sure. And it, it just, I suffered unnecessarily. And, um, I want to just be able to write sincerely and authentically, but also in an accessible way that people can see themselves in what I do, even if they're not queer or female or lesbian. I don't want it to be so specifically identified to me that other people can't see themselves in it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I work really hard to do that while also trying to like craft words in a way that is unique. Is it? I imagine it was uh, cathartic for you to do the poetry. Uh, and that's my my I've never done slam poetry, but in just as an observer, as a watcher, as an audience member, I find that a lot of times, not all the times, but a lot of times, for people that are expressing themselves through their poetry, it's pain that they're letting go of, or pain that they're getting out, or maybe pain that they're reliving to share with others who may also be going through the similar experiences. Is mm-hmm. that is that kind of the standard for? It's, you know what, I don't know if it necessarily was always that way, but it definitely has become an outlet, I think for, and I say a younger generation in that I, um, you know, I see a lot of 21 to 25 year olds at the slam now when I go sit in the back and like just watch to see who's performing that are very aware of the toxicity of unexpressed truth. And they're very aware that, um, you know, that that keeping all of that in can literally kill them. Uh And they're also aware that we have a really shitty healthcare system in this country and that mental healthcare is not always accessible to everybody. And 
Um, they just need someone to listen. Yeah. And yeah. that was, I mean, that was tremendous for me too. I just, I didn't need anybody to tell me that everything was going to be fine. I just needed someone to say like, I hear you. Right. Right. And we're going to be okay. Yeah. I think, yeah. uh, you mentioned something earlier about therapist, your therapist, therapy's great. Everybody should do it. I agree. If you, I mean, I, I know in Kansas City before I had health insurance, I saw a free therapist. It took a while to get on a waiting list, but like it was just necessary. And now it's just become something that's a, a staple part of my life. It allows me to ground myself. It allows me to have some perspective on things that I want to be right about that I'm not right about, you know? And I, um, when people are writing and they're performing on stage about pain, you know, I, I talk about this a lot in a kind of callous manner, but like, when you're in pain, you need an outlet. When you're happy, you're fucking busy being happy. Like you right. don't need to write it down. You're taking, you might be taking photos of it, but like you are busy being happy. When you are suffering, you are busy feeling like nothing. And you kind of write yourself back into existence by honoring everything that you're feeling. And I think that that brings you back into visibility. So. Mm-hmm. I notice a lot of it is pain, um, but I love to write about fun, silly, happy things too, because <laughs> like, because there are things that, I, that bring me great joy and I don't think that all writing should have to be, you know, this corner market of suffering and disdain. <laughs> I think, I think it's become, it's easy to, not easy to tap into those emotions, but once you do to let those emotions out, it's very powerful. Whereas yeah. To just talk about stuff that's fun. I mean, that's also why. I mean, why is our media always so much about fear? Because that shit sells. Versus, the birds were out today. It was a beautiful day. Everything was green. Oh yeah, I was watching the news tonight, and it was like it was a scorching ninety-seven degrees. And I was like, yeah, don't leave your kids in your car. Or your dog's out back. Uh, it was also a really beautiful Memorial Day weekend. Right, right. And there was a lot of great <laughs> shit that happened around town. There were festivals and fireworks, and like, why are we talking about like a dead? Ugh, God, this is terrible. I know. I know we need to alert the public to be safe and concerned, but like, God bless. Can't we just talk about something that's happy? Right. <laughs> that's why I don't watch no. local news. That's why I don't watch the news. I just, uh, I, somebody, uh, the girl who moved out of this apartment before I lived here left me a brand new flat screen TV. I don't know why, but she left it here. Oh, very nice. And it has like one of those modern satellites on it, like the like weird little flat ones. So I, t- I turn it on to go to Netflix, and it's like, local news update. Like, oh, my God, are we being bombed? No. Right, no, everything's right. just a, a stage 10 panic attack for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm going to have the TED Talk link in the notes, and yeah. um, I'll have any other links that you want to have to your website, to your Patreon. You're talking about your Patreon. Yeah. We might need to talk about more about that offline, but if you want to talk about that, I'll have that in the okay. notes. Talk about what you're working on today, this zine that's on Patreon yeah. and this butch book that's coming out. You've written a couple other books. Are they available? Can we find those on Amazon or somewhere? Or You can download Slammed on Amazon Kindle. Okay. That's under Jen Harris because um, I'm out of print copies right now. And then I have two books that are available on pre-order. Um, well, they'll be combined into one. So the pre-order is on my website. Uh, for unconfirmed certainties and then once I get Butch is very much in its infant stage so that'll be another six months and the website again is poetjenharris.com dot com and I'm sure I'm just gonna do a quick google search I bet if you google poet Jen Harris 
I mean, how man, I've tried, I've worked every moment of every day for four years to make sure I am the top hit on. The, <laughs> I you use are. my own hashtag. I take it very seriously. <laughs> oh, I got the Kickstarter. Is this you, Poet Jen Harris, for all parents? Yeah, uh, Button Poetry picked that up. I think last year. I think that video got something like thirteen thousand views. I entered into a contest, didn't win, but they still shared the video, so that was cool. Yeah, it's totally for cool. all parents is a, a project I worked on. My niece, my favorite human in the whole world, is the the feature of that video. But um, that was my, it continues to be the poem I want people to be able to send to their parents when their parents are struggling with their children coming out. The whole message of that that piece is we're still your children. And uh, we didn't change actually at all. This is inherently... Um, I wouldn't say born this way. I think that whole like a biological uh, determination thing is kind of a dangerous road to travel down. But um, when you know something about yourself that you can't hide anymore, uh, I don't think that it should be greeted with a fight and, and, you know, potentially the end of a relationship. So I wanted to create something that people could send that was soft and considerate of both sides of the experience. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I, I will have a link. To, I'll check that out and link it as well so people can also check it out. Uh, any other last words you want to say to the Crave audience? Things you want to share? You know, I just, I very much appreciate being on the show today. Thank you so much. That was very kind of you. Well, absolutely. No, I appreciate you taking the time. I know, you know, we got separated by some dis- geographic distance, but I'm glad that we have this great technology. We can take the time. Thanks for sharing your poetry. That was great. I really appreciate Thank you. you. Jen Thank Harris, you. thanks again for being on the Crave podcast. Thank you so much. The music for episode 21 of the Crave podcast is once again The Desert Dwellers and The View from Laniakea. Why? Because it's a great track and we want to listen to it again. Thank you for listening to the Crave magazine podcast. I am Jim Wills, your host and producer for this episode, and I am on a mission to bring art back to the world. And with your help, we can make that happen. So please take a moment to leave a positive review for us on iTunes. And if you like what you heard, even more importantly, tell your friends. If there's something that we can do better, by all means, let us know. And if you are an artist or even just want to hear from a favorite artist, well, send us a message. We are putting this show out for all of us who love and appreciate the arts. So tell us how we can improve. Remember, always be good to one another. And of course, take time to feed your soul with art. Thank you.